0: We thought the strains of Dixie might be appropriate for today's program because, well, Election Day might just represent the South rising again. We are, and we must confess, recording this program on Election Day, and thus we'll not be able to have any sort of comprehensive analysis. I'll have to wait till next week. But another reason that Dixie might be appropriate is that it seems pretty clear at this point that we have on our hands a 21st century of Union General. Robert McClellan. McClellan was, in fact, the 1864 Democratic nominee for the presidency. He lost to Honest Abe Lincoln because before that election, the Union had had some success and looked like they were going to win the thing. When McClellan, of course, had been in charge of the Union army, the Confederates did astoundingly well. This was largely due to the fact that McClellan's legendary timidity caused him to not press attacks even when he had a 10-to-1 advantage. McClellan's inability to press the advantage which he possessed militarily caused President Lincoln to, in frustration, ask him once if he could borrow the Union Army since McClellan didn't seem to want to be using it much. I'm paraphrasing that. But if you know your history of the Civil War, you know this story. The initial successes of the Confederacy were in no small part due to the incompetence of Robert McClellan. And here in the 21st century, we've reached a point where elections are taking place, the midterm elections, and yet Donald J. Trump remains unindicted. In the opinion of this correspondent, this makes Merrick Garland, the United States Attorney General, the modern-day version of Robert McClellan. Garland has elected not to press the attack forward, at least when it would do the most good, before the election. Perhaps an indictment will come down after all the damage is done on election day. And you know what? Maybe it won't turn out as bad as many of us fear when all the votes are counted. But if it does go down badly, I would say the strategic uh, planning of Merrick Garland is going to rank him right up there with uh, those efforts to produce the battles of Bull Run. And in the end, prolong the war many, many years. Anyway, Barack Obama's been out on the campaign trail, telling Democrats that sulking and moping is not an option. Well, we'd have to agree with that, along with sitting on your ass, Mr. Attorney General. And yeah, I know there's some that say, well, they're building a case. Yeah, I guess so. It was interesting to note that the January 6th committee did obtain eight emails last week, that um, supposedly could demonstrate that former President Trump and his legal team advanced allegations about 2020 voter fraud that they knew to be false. Gee, do you think? These emails, inadvertently turned over by Trump's then-attorney, John Eastman, were reportedly a window into discussions among Trump's attorneys about accusations that Fulton County in Georgia had improperly counted 10,000-plus votes from dead people, felons, and unregistered voters. Federal Judge David Carter ruled earlier this week that the emails were not protected by attorney-client privilege, falling under a crime-fraud exception to the privilege rules. Four of the emails reportedly showed Trump's lawyers discussing plans to file frivolous lawsuits to delay certification of Joe Biden's victory. One email states that getting Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to consider an appeal of the Georgia vote would end up being key to the plot to overturn the election. So, yeah, I know they continue to find uh, more and more evidence in, in the case against Trump, but uh, I think what they had a year ago was plenty to indict. That's just my personal opinion. One thing we've covered on this program over the years is, well, it's, it's the questionable nature of the vote counts that take place in our national elections. We have not found ourselves siding with those who say that our elections are secure Over the past 20 years, we've discussed numerous instances where elections in this country had dubious results. On the flip side of that, we do not agree that the 2020 election provides an example of a dubious outcome. In fact, looking at the polling data versus the actual election count, it appears that Joe Biden turned up several percentage points short. He won by something like 7 million votes, but it, it, it could have been more if it had gone according to the polls. Now, this whole issue of polling data just is an issue that never seems to go away. The Economist, in their pre-election issue, took up the issue once again. They had some interesting things to say about it. They conducted a poll of the polls. They called the crew that was doing this analysis the Midterm Maths and said the magazine, For the past two months, Midterm Maths has been battling bias in polls. More often, we've looked at potential errors that, like in 2016 and 2020, would push surveys to overestimate support for Democrats. That is the misfire most observers are worried about. After all, little would change in the Senate if the party won 52 seats up from the 50 they hold today. But the Democrats win only 47 or 48. The federal government would look very different. Yet, what if polls are underestimating support for the Democrats? Many surveys published in the closing weeks of this midterm campaign have come from firms that are either explicitly affiliated with Republican clients or simply publish numbers that are favorable to the party, what pollsters call a house effect. According to our poll of the polls, in New Hampshire's Senate race, for example, all seven polls released since October 1st were conducted by firms that we think are publishing numbers that is overly favorable to Republicans. They note that their model that generates their poll of polls makes three adjustments for the predicted bias of a polling firm. The first is based on a pollster's historical record, and they compared each firm's accuracy to that of pollsters who released surveys in the same or similar races. If a firm is more favorable to either Democrats or Republicans in one year, they tend to overestimate support for that same party in the next election cycle too. They noted by this measure, five of the seven pollsters who have surveyed New Hampshire's Senate race have overestimated support for Republicans in the past. The second adjustment takes into account whether a poll has been conducted for or was released by a partisan group or candidate. Finally, their model assesses whether a poll has released polls that are still biased after controlling for the above sources of error, their so-called house effect adjustments. So the bias in the polling supports our notion that when you see a huge Democratic advantage in the polls that doesn't turn out on the actual election count, Something is fishy. The magazine did note that after all this calculating, their best estimate is the Republicans will win the House comfortably. The Senate is considered too close to call, although Republicans appear to have an edge there too. They closed by noting that candidate quality, or lack of it, does not seem to be hurting Donald Trump's party very much. Someone was pointing out on CNN, CNN or MSNBC, I'm not sure which, that Republicans just don't seem to want to shy away from running celebrities for office. Witness Mehmet Oz and Herschel Walker. And of course, there's Ronald Reagan to serve as a great example. And someone piped up and said, and Donald Trump. And come to think of it, didn't we elect Arnold Schwarzenegger governor here in California not too long ago? Yeah, that's right. Anyway, it does appear that as voting is well underway, Republicans are optimistic. The polls have shown that the average voter is most concerned about inflation and the cost of living, in particular, gas prices. Unfortunately for the Democrats, abortion, which dominated the debate several months ago following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, has dropped on the list of concerns. One thing that doesn't seem to get very high on the radar of the voters uh, is global warming. Remember in the presidential debates back in 2016 when both parties agreed not to talk about it? Plinits noted the Democrats pivoted in the final weeks of this campaign to attack Republicans on extremism, pointing out that more than half of GOP candidates refused to concede that President Biden won in 2020, which seems like a reasonable concern. I mean, we keep pounding on it here, don't we, Mr. McMillan? We've mentioned it once or twice. Yeah. Barack Obama's been touring the country urging fellow Democrats to abandon cultural wedge issues, implying the party's just a little bit too woke. We've taken the position on this program that uh, if you're a hyper-progressive Democrat who thinks we should defund the police, you are playing into the hands of the opposition. And speaking of helping political efforts, we had an email forwarded to us by Paul regarding a story that we think probably should have earned more attention in the mainstream press, but apparently Homeland Security now admits it tried to manufacture fake terrorists for Donald Trump. Yes, apparently uh, an internal investigative report from the DHS was made public last month by Ron Wyden, a Democrat of Oregon. It details the findings of DHH's lawyers concerning a previously undisclosed effort by Trump's acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, to amass secret dossiers on Americans in Portland attending anti-racism protests in the summer of 2020. The report describes attempts by top officials to link protesters to an imaginary terrorist plot in an apparent effort to boost Trump's re-election odds. This raises concerns about the ability of a sitting president to co-opt billions of dollars worth of domestic intelligence assets for their own political purposes. Trump, of course, pointed a finger at Antifa. I I think one of the more comedic moments of the January 6th hearings was the description of Trump sitting in the... uh, lunchroom, watching the TV display of the mayhem taking place at the Capitol, and when being asked about it by one of his aides, at first said, No, that's that's Antifa. But when you know it, he wasn't able to make that one stick. And speaking of misuse of investigative resources, how about this story? The UC Davis Police Department used artificial intelligence to monitor students social media. Yes, according to the California Aggie, on October nineteenth the U C Davis Police Department released a statement confirming It is using a software program, DTEAT, to conduct, quote, threat monitoring, unquote, of students' social media accounts. UCDPD Lieutenant Joanne Zakani described the program as allowing a select few members of the police department to discern genuine threats to individual and community safety, saying, quote, the software carries out searches based on keywords that we supply, unquote, adding the goal of these searches is to find signs that someone is at risk of harming themselves or others. Using this software allows us to scan many thousands of social media posts from our community for a few that are of genuine concern. And apparently, the police department has been using this scanning software since 2015. An investigation published by the Dallas Morning News a month earlier found that the company marketed its AI services as a way of mitigating or forestalling student protests. Well, that's something we should probably keep an eye on. There obviously is some value to to seeing the sorts of things being posted on social media. Evidently, David DePepe, the man who broke into the Pelosi's home in San Francisco and attacked Paul Pelosi with a hammer, had a social media history laced with conspiracy theories from QAnon, anti-vaxxers, and the big lie about the theft of election 2020. The problem is social media allows so many nutcases to communicate with other nutcases and, and, and promote violence that it's pretty hard to uh, focus on where the real threats are. And we would suggest that if you're depending upon AI to solve that problems well, I <laughs> we think you're being overly optimistic. I continue to be impressed by the, the, the wave of falsehoods that surrounded that attack on Paul Pelosi. To go from the New York Times piece by Annie Carney, within hours of the brutal attack last month on Paul Pelosi, the husband of Speaker of the House, activists and media outlets on the right began circulating groundless claims, nearly all of them sinister and many homophobic, casting doubt on what happened. Some Republican officials quickly joined in, rushing to suggest that the bludgeoning of an octogenarian by a suspect obsessed with right-wing conspiracy theories was something else altogether, dismissing it as an inside job, a lover's quarrel, or worse. The Times noted the misinformation came from all levels of Republican politics. A U.S. senator circulated the view that none of us will ever know what really happened at the home. A senior Republican congressman referred to the attacker as a nudist, hippie, male prostitute, baselessly asserting that the suspect had a personal relationship with Paul Pelosi. Former President Trump questioned whether the attack might have been staged. Brian Hughes, professor at American University, was quoted as saying, this is the dynamic as it plays out. The conspiracy theory prompts an act of violence. That act of violence needs to be disavowed, and it can only be disavowed by more conspiracy theories, which prompts more violence. Although many Republican leaders denounced the violence, and some, including former Vice President Pence, expressed sympathy for the Pelosi's, none of them publicly condemned the falsehoods their colleagues were elevating nor did anything to push back. That left others to fill the void. Tucker Carlson demanded on his show, just produce the b- police body cams. Addressing those criticizing these conspiracy theories, Carlson added, we're not the crazy people, you're the liars. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, period. And sure enough, echoing this, I've seen people uh, posting on Facebook asking, well, why don't they just release the police body cams? As if there's some details in this attack that, uh, that would change the whole equation. I did write one poster to point out that, well, yeah, if I was wearing a MAGA hat, I'd try to shift the tension off the January 6th attempted coup onto the Pelosi attack also. Nina Jankowicz, a disinformation expert, said no amount of evidence, be it police, body camera footage, or anything else, could get in the way of such falsehoods in the eyes of those who do not want to believe facts. Jankiewicz said it doesn't matter when there are documents or sworn testimony claiming something is not the case. There will be an elaborate reframing effort. If the footage was released, people would claim it was fabricated. There's no bottom. Of course, many of the Republicans who amplified this fiction couched their comments as jokes, effectively preempting any criticism by suggesting they might not be serious. Hours after the attack, Donald Trump Jr., shared an online viral image of a costume that included an oversized pair of man's briefs and a hammer, remarking the internet remains undefeated. I think he also posted it as his Halloween costume. Afterwards, a spokesman for Trump said he was simply posting a joke meme and has always rejected political violence in all forms. Really? Well, why doesn't he say that? Meanwhile, De Pepe's lawyers said he plans to argue that De Pepe was so influenced by disinformation that it should be considered a mitigating circumstance. But let's talk about the calls for violence that seem to be taking place everywhere in the United States at the moment, from the right. According to Mother Jones, just hours after federal agents entered Mar-a-Lago on August 8th to seize highly classified national security documents, Paul Gosar, a representative, urged a fight to the finish. The far-right Arizona congressman tweeted, "'Failure is not an option. We must destroy the FBI.'" Three days later, an Ohio man named Ricky Schiffer donned tactical gear, armed himself with an AR-15, and went to the FBI field office in Cincinnati. After failing to breach the facility, he fled and later died in a shootout with law enforcement. Schiffer was a frequent user of Trump's Truth Social site, where the ex-president has kept up steady attacks on political opponents and the Justice Department and FBI. Schiffer had posted about imminent violence telling fellow Trump supporters to be ready to jump into civil war. People, this is it, Schiffer wrote shortly before the Mar-a-Lago news broke. He then called for stocking up at gun stores with, quote, whatever you need to be ready for combat, unquote. He also said patriots are heading to Palm Beach and should kill any federal agents who try to stop them. Yes, we've come a long way from President George H.W. Bush uh, renouncing the NRA for disparaging federal agents as, quote, jackbooted thugs, unquote. Republican senators now wield such rhetoric. Ted Cruz warned stop Biden's shadow army of 87,000 IRS agents. Senator Chuck Grassley insinuated that an IRS strike force could show up with assault weapons ready to shoot some small business person in Iowa. In the wake of Mar-a-Lago, Senator Lindsey Graham conjured a specter of civil unrest. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information, he said on Fox, there'll be riots in the streets. Trump posted Graham segments on Truth Social soon afterwards. Then we have Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's mimicking Trump's playbook as he eyes a White House run. In a late August speech, DeSantis evoked violence against a figure despised by the right, Anthony Fauci. DeSantis told a roaring crowd, I'm just sick of seeing him. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Now, of course, Trump routinely demonized adversaries as sick, creepy, nasty, and disgusting. GOP lawmakers, including Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, have followed suit. And that's especially concerning, notes Mother Jones. Research led by psychologist David Matsumoto shows that anger, combined with contempt and disgust, This is a potent hatred that increases the likelihood of violence. The Europeans are looking at this uh, nervously. Johanna Saul, writing in the Frankfurter Rundschau, said that in the five years since Trump was elected, the number of threats against members of Congress shot up more than tenfold. Yet, Fox News, the cable outlet that operates as a propaganda arm for MAGA Republicans, is presenting the Pelosi attack as just another crime. Their pundit, Jesse Waters, actually said on the air that People are being hit with hammers every day. And that's thanks to a crime wave that he blamed on Democrats. Andrew Buncombe, writing in The Independent in the UK, said America's always been shockingly violent. Four of its forty-six presidents have been assassinated, compared with one British Prime Minister. And of course, if Squeaky Frome knew how to handle a pistol, or John Hinckley had a bigger gun, the total might be six. But the Independent noted that it it feels worse now. It's a moment when the debate is so toxic. The Americans cannot even agree the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th are heroes or seditionists. Well, we can answer that one. They're seditionists. But yes, we acknowledge there's some who think they're heroes. Buncombe added, few other Western countries have politicians who encourage their supporters to chant and boo and to call, lock her up. We did express some optimism last week that the elections down in Brazil gave us some cause for optimism. On the other hand, Bolsonaro has not yet acknowledged the victory of Lula da Silva, and he may well try to disrupt Lula's January 1st inauguration. We'll have to keep an eye on Brazil. We probably should keep an eye on Israel as well. Some news over there balancing off uh, the good news from Brazil is the fact that the Israelis have yet again elected Benjamin Netanyahu as their prime minister in their fifth election in the last four years, Netanyahu managed to cling to power, even though he's under indictment for corruption. Of course, you guess a difference between Israel and America. At least Netanyahu is under indictment for corruption. Of course, he still wins. And in fact, his new coalition is going to be the most right-wing of all, with the ultra-right religious Zionist party doubling its presence from seven seats in the last election to an unprecedented 15. Yikes. I got about six minutes left, and I want... To cite the fantastic article in the New York Times Magazine by Jim Rutenberg titled, The Untold Story of Russiagate and the Road to War in Ukraine. The subheadline is, Russia's meddling in Trump era politics was more directly connected to the current war than previously understood. This is an epic article. We need to go over it in some detail. We won't have time to do it justice today because I'm determined to take a break in the second half of today's program and talk about something else other than politics. We think Tim Rutenberg deserves all the credit in the world for this piece of reporting, although I would say that so much of what appears in this article has been reported previously on this program through the good works of Stephen J. Harper. His investigation into the connection between the Trump campaign and Russia has been absolutely comprehensive. Mr. Ruttenberg, however, has added some dimensions to the tale that are pretty hair-raising. Now, we know we're planning to bring Stephen Harper back onto the program. Maybe the best way to handle this would be to have him comment on some of the details that are in this piece, which Mr. Harper had not previously outlined. Ruttenberg has strung together in a very clear way what happened in Ukraine politically, how that tied into Putin and the Russian oligarchs, In Ukraine, and the Trump campaign through Paul Manafort and others. The claim has been made by the Trump team that if Trump was still president, the war in Ukraine would not have happened. In a way, that might be true because Putin would have been able perhaps to have attained his goals without having to go to war. Anyway, it's a hell of a story. We're not going to be able to get to it today. Let's instead close with one of the most alarming things we're going to talk about in this entire segment. We reached out to Barton Gelman for his excellent. We reached out to Barton Gelman a few weeks ago to see if he might be brought onto this program to talk about his book, Dark Mirror, and the Frontline Special, which he was prominently featured in back in 2014 on spying of Americans by the NSA and others. His publicity person told us that he was not doing interviews at the moment. I guess that might be because he was writing an article over The Atlantic we need to talk about. Mr. Gelman is now saying in an article in The Atlantic that eventually Republicans will leave themselves little choice but to impeach Joe Biden. If they win control of the House, they're going to impeach Joe Biden. The ramp-up will start with exhaustive investigations into Hunter Biden's high-paying foreign jobs. As Fox News whips up the outrage, the pressure from the MAGA base will build. Said Gelman, a recent poll found that 68 percent of Americans already believe Biden should be impeached and thwarting those expectations would be dangerous for Kevin McCarthy, who needs MAGA support to become Speaker of the House. What charge will Republicans come up with? It could be related to Hunter, although that will require showing that Joe played an active role in his son's foreign work, or was paid himself. The GOP might claim Biden failed to enforce immigration laws or come up with some other high crime and misdemeanor. Some Republicans admit the details won't even matter. The twice-impeached Donald Trump, who will have far more influence over the House than McCarthy, will insist on impeachment as a form of retribution, especially if he's indicted. Well, therein hangs a tale. When that happens, said Gellman, impeachment will become as much a litmus test for Republican House members as the big lie about the 2020 election. All right, we got about two minutes left. I do want to note that I was appalled to see that on a local level... $7.7 $7.7 million were being spent in the East Bay for a state Senate race. i got to say, I was pretty appalled by the election material that turned up in my mailbox over this particular uh, race in District 10. I couldn't bring myself to vote for either candidate. I guess we should end this by quoting a meme being sent by Ron Cooper. Ron was the boss of Mr. Millen and I when we worked over at uh, Access Sacramento many years ago. Ron's a pretty good guy, and he posted the following meme. I didn't win the Powerball last night. Mass lottery fraud is my guess. We found buckets of lottery balls that had my numbers. I'm the true jackpot winner. I'm checking for traces of bamboo now. Yeah, the bamboo reference has to do with the fact that down in Arizona, there was a claim that the Chinese had sent in uh, fake ballots. They were going to deduce this by finding threads of bamboo mixed in with the paper. I'm, I'm pretty sure they weren't successful in this. Anyway, I'm so done with this topic for today. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Joining us after a brief break will be one of our all-time favorites, Howard McKinney. You don't want to miss Howard.